Welcome. You are listening to the Upper Room Podcast. For more information or to donate to this ministry, visit URFellowship.com. Good morning, everybody. We're in a series called Blind Spots. We looked last week at how uh, the truth about us is that we don't always know the truth about us, and that the general level of human self-awareness is sometimes pretty low. And part of the problem is we hear that, and we say, yep, that is true. I know some people who are amazingly non-self-aware. By definition, no one thinks they lack self-awareness, and that's a problem. So that brings us to the question, how do we ever really know the truth about us? And that brings us to a great story in the Bible. I love this story. This is in Matthew chapter 20. It says, Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, so that's James and John's mom, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it that you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. So so what an amazing moment. Jesus tells the disciples he's on his way to die. Um, Jesus says that he's going to be betrayed, condemned, mocked, flogged, and crucified. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came. And she says, before that happens, can I get a quick ask? She's probably thinking, this is is good timing. I I can get in right under the wire here. Jesus, would you do me a solid? You know my boys here, Jimmy and Johnny. Before you're humiliated and martyred in the ultimate act of self-sacrificial love, could my boys get a promotion? Could they get an upgrade? I know you have 12 disciples and all but could you make sure my boys are disciple number one and disciple number two? Now, you see this kind of thing repeatedly happening in the Gospels. Times Jesus is talking about his need to suffer and die, and then somebody or the disciples responding by arguing about who's the greatest. This happens actually three times in the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, and three times in the Gospel of Mark. New Testament scholar Dale Bruner says, the Gospel wants disciples to know their congenital obtuseness. Here, mom is talking to Jesus, and the boys are standing right there, right? You notice this collusion of this little group. The boys don't have to ask Jesus themselves because mom's going to do that for them. They can just stand there and look sheepish and modest, as if they wish this wasn't happening. But they just want to make mom happy. And mom can convince herself that this is purely an act of motherly love. She's not asking anything for herself, of course. She's selflessly seeking the well-being of her sons. You see, in the ancient world, parents would sometimes gratify their own egos through the accomplishments of their children. Something strange they used to do in the ancient world. Mrs. Zebedee here is swooping in to make sure her boys outshine the other boys. And it's so human. She kneels before Jesus in this posture of humility and surrender. In other words, it's possible to have a blind spot and deceive yourself so that in an act of incredible, incredible entitlement and arrogance that everybody else would recognize, you actually think you're being and coming across as humble and self-effacing. That's what's going on with her. Now, just an exercise in imagination. 
Imagine for a moment that Mrs. Zebedee here is in a small group at her church. She goes to the group later that week. They ask her, what'd you do this week, Mrs. Z? Well, I, I went down to where Jesus was teaching. He was saying something about Jerusalem. I didn't really pay much attention to that um, because I had, I had a lot on my mind. I actually got down on my knees and I asked him if my sons could sit on his right and his left. They could be disciple number one and, and number two. How do you think the other members of the small group or of our church responded? i tell you how they responded. Some said things like, Mrs. Z, you're a great mom. I hope your boys realize just how lucky they are. Did Jesus say yes to you? He must have said yes to you. Now other people in the group see what's going on and are thinking, what? Who's? She thinks she is trying to elevate her children like that. But nobody in that group says that. There are ways that groups sometimes collude with each other to help each other avoid blind spots. We can, if we're not careful, keep each other from growing. So there's this amazing story. Mrs. Z gets down on her knees. She makes the ask, can my boys be number one and number two? And everybody looks at Jesus. Now, the thing for you to know here about Jesus is he's always loving, always filled with grace, always kind. But he understood that being nice and being kind are not the same thing, and sometimes completely at odds with each other. So Jesus here doesn't say, well, that's a noble request. I can't make any promises, but I hate to disappoint people, so I'll check with my father to see what we can do, right? This isn't what he says. Let's look at what he says, Matthew 20, 22. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to who? Them. That them is really significant. He isn't just talking to her anymore. He's calling them on their collusion. In the text, it's pretty clear Mrs. Z intends this to be a conversation only between Jesus and her that maintains the, the pretext that she's in it for the boys. And the boys are there only for her sake. Little systems, little groups, little families can go this way. There are little blind spots that we just don't talk about. Little rules about the group or the family that we all kind of understand. And Jesus is always breaking these rules. He's always bringing those things into the light. And ironically, religion is associated with rules and Jesus with religion, but he gets in way more trouble for breaking rules than he does making them. Here he breaks the rules. He responds to them. In other words, the boys as well as the mom. Don't you boys hide behind your mom, and don't you mom hide behind your boys. And this gets to the core of what we're talking about today. This, the idea was that very often in human relationships, especially in churches and in Christian settings where we suffer sometimes from terminal niceness, we will address a difficult problem with another person, but when it comes to the most important, most sensitive, most needed most honest, hardest part of that truth, we kind of shrink back. We get a little fuzzy or vague or indirect, precisely when the truth is needed the most. We may tell ourselves we're doing it to be loving or to spare the other person's feelings, but the real reason is fear. I'm afraid you might not like me. I'm afraid you might get mad at me. But the truth about me is I have blind spots. And I will never know what the truth about me is if I don't have some people close to me who love me enough and have the courage to tell me what they are. This is why Paul wrote this to the church at Ephesus. These are such great words. Ephesians 4, 14 through 16. Instead, 
we will speak the truth in love, growing every more, every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly, as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow, so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. All the time, you and I are sending off little signals uh, by how we listen, by our body language, by how we respond. Am I open to the truth or am I closed to it? And if you are closed to it, you will send that message to other people and they will stop telling you and pull away. And then you will never know the truth about yourself. And you will not grow in every way to be more like Christ. Jesus speaks the truth in, in love. He says, next slide, Kina. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answer. Jesus is looking for any kind of glimmer of self-awareness in James and John here. So he starts by saying to them, you, you, don't, you don't know what you're even asking for. Do you understand the cup I have to drink? And the cup in the Bible is very often an image for human destiny, particularly as it relates to the judgment of God. So Jesus is going to have to take that on. So he says to them, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And before you respond, let me give you a little clue about the correct answer. Here's three really important words. You don't know. You don't know about the cup. You don't know about my fate. You don't know about the cost. You don't know yourselves. You don't know what motivates you. You don't know what's in your heart. You don't know what you're capable of. You don't know what God is up to. You don't know. This is a big hint before you respond. You don't know. You've got a big blind spot here. Now, can you drink the cup? Heck yeah. Easy. Piece of cake. No problem. They said. Next slide. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right and my left is not for me to grant. Even here, Jesus is humble. It's not for me to give. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. So that's the scene with Jesus and Mrs. Zebedee and her two boys. Then there are the rest of the disciples. And they find out about this. And we don't know how. Um, if you're James and John, probably you don't want them to know. Probably you kind of want this whole situation to stay secret. Um, but as, as a general rule, it's really hard to do biblical, authentic community speaking truth and love when you're trying to keep secrets. So however it happens, it leaks out. Next, next slide. So when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Why are they mad? I think because they're like, why didn't I think of that? What's left now? If disciple number one and disciple number two are taken... All I can do is jockey for, what, 3 through 12? That's all that's left. And I want to talk about this, this dynamic, these dynamics and this jostling for power and position in that little community of disciples is really instructive and really important for us to know about. Sometimes we can put Bible characters on a pedestal and not realize that we, we learn from them because they're like us. So Jesus had 12 disciples, but three of them, Peter, James, and John, formed an inner circle. And the Gospels are quite clear about this. Those three are the only ones with um, Jesus at the, the Mount of Transfiguration, who see him radiant in glory. 
those three are the only three who, uh, excuse me, Jesus takes with him to the home of a man named Jairus, who, where he performs one of his greatest miracles. They're the only three who go, to, uh, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and on all the way with him, he tells the rest of the disciples, stay behind. It says he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. In other words, they see the depths and the vulnerability of Jesus that other disciples don't see. And I was thinking about that this week. Why would Jesus, who's, who is so adamant that all human beings are equally loved by God and matter the same to God, deliberately create an inner circle that would leave some disciples feeling on the outside while three feel like they're on in the inner circle. Why would Jesus deliberately do that? I think we get a clue in the next few verses. Look at what happens when the others, the disciples, get mad about the situation with Mrs. Zebedee. Matthew 20, 25 through 28. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus never allows a destructive, hidden agenda to go unnamed and undiscussed. He constantly is calling all of the disciples together to talk about what's going on. And a lot of Jesus' greatest and most transformative teaching happen in these unplanned moments when he calls them together. It's, and it's, it's really interesting what he, he doesn't say here. He doesn't say, you know what, guys? I've been spending a lot of time with Peter, James, and John. I can see where they would look like my favorites. I have hurt your feelings. I'm sorry. From now on, I'll divide my time into 12 equal parts. You can keep track. Right? He doesn't do that. He doesn't try. There are these different circles. There's a 72 he sends out with Luke. There are the 12. There are the three inside that. And people's feelings about that, their, their jealousy or envy or feelings the feeling left out or feeling inferior or feeling superior and puffed up, Jesus consistently is bringing those things into the light. <clears throat> he brings those things into the light so that those things, these unplanned moments, they can kind of be the, the fuel for the furnace of spiritual formation in their lives. He will bring it into the light, into the open time, and time again, and call everybody to name it and die to it, and live in humble servanthood. And I say this about the disciples because sometimes people think, I would experience richer, deeper, closer, more joy-filled community if I just had healthier people in my relational world. And the problem with that is, you wouldn't get the opportunity to work through anything. You wouldn't get the opportunity to work through the trash or the blind spots together. And that is how you grow. Oh, and by the, by the way, James and John in this little inner circle are no picnic for Jesus. People, people often think about Peter as this kind of rash, impulsive character. And if they think about John, they think about him as kind of this mellow, beloved guy. Not so much. Jesus gives to Simon the, the nickname Peter, Petros, rock, 
The only two other disciples he gives nicknames to are James and John, sons of Zebedee, to whom Jesus gives a nickname. Anybody know? Sons of Thunder. What kind of temperament and verbal style would they most likely have to get the nickname Sons of Thunder? John is all about, I want to be number one, not just in this story with his mom. Look at this in Luke 9. An argument started among the disciples as to which would be the greatest. They had this problem all the time. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and explained to them, for he who is at is least among you all, he is the greatest. Here's John's response. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Jesus is talking about how the least among them is greatest. John's immediate response is, you know, Jesus, speaking of the greatest, some guy out there is looking greater than us. We try to make him stop relieving people of their misery and oppression because he's not part of our circle, but we couldn't stop him. So you have to make him stop so he doesn't look better than us. Jesus responds, no, don't stop him. Whoever is not against us is for us. He's saying, guys, the circle is infinitely larger than you know. The the very next verse, they're walking through a Samaritan village. The Samaritans were generally enemies with the Israelites. So this Samaritan village doesn't welcome them. No surprise. Luke 9, 54, when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, Do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? We're better than them, those Samaritans. Can we um, we turn them to ash? Jesus turns and rebukes them. Okay, so how long do you think this unhealthy, destructive competition and comparison went? This got to be better than everybody else. How long do you think this went on for John? It's amazing. Even after Jesus is crucified, this is incredible. This is just so human. John chapter 20. So Peter and the other disciple John started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Even on Easter morning, they're having a race. There's this competition between Peter and John. Who's the fastest disciple? Well, we know it's John. How do we know? John told us. This is only noted in one gospel, the Gospel of John. I picture them getting to the tomb and John being like, hey, I won. And Peter says, like, yeah, but I I get to go inside first, all right? And there's an angel there saying, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. And John's like, yeah, still I won, though. I was here first. I'm going to write it down. But they eventually learn and understand. Uh, The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, and the church is born, and all that Jesus taught them when he was with them transforms them, and then they begin to suffer. One day, King Herod had James, the brother John, put to death with the sword, and I wonder when that moment came if James remembered that day when he knelt down before Jesus with his mom and asked to be first, because he's the first to give up his life for Jesus. John's the last. John ends up an old man living in exile on the island called Patmos. If you ever read his letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, all he can do is talk about love. So the question is, who have you asked to speak truth to you in love? Where are you doing that? Because it starts with you. 
right? You have to be open and want to hear the truth about yourself before you earn the privilege of telling others their blind spots. The truth about you is you will never know the blind spots in your life unless you invite some brothers or sisters to tell you the truth about you. Let's read Ephesians 4, 14 and 16 again. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow, so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. We want that. Paul says there's no growing into spiritual maturity just by you working on yourself as an individual. It's through deep involvement in a church community and through the increasing of the unity and the closeness of the relationships inside that Christian community community that you will grow into maturity. So just to get just make this really concrete, how are you at telling other people the truth when it needs to be told? Speaking the truth in love means honesty, absolute honesty, but an, abs, but an honesty saturated with just an overflowing with tenderness and grace and love. We need that perfect balance of truth and love together. Because love without truth is deadly, because you never know your blind spot. But also, truth without love is deadly. Because when you tell people the truth, but you're abrasive, you're not loving, we all right? Now, loving the other person is actually not only not going to listen to the truth, that person's going to harden their heart. So if you feel like erupting, it's not the best timing for having this type of conversation. And then the second part of this is how are you at receiving the truth? I'll give you a few wrong ways. Some people just get mad, right? Defensive, stubborn, get this hard shell. The message of that says, don't tell me. Some people just crumble. They respond like, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm awful. Um, I'm terrible. Nobody could love me. I'm a failure. Which is really kind of just a subtle, sneaky, manipulative way of trying to make you feel guilty so you never do it again. Some people give superficial empathy. Okay, thank you for telling me. I appreciate your honest feedback. But inside they have no intention of going through the pain of looking inward. So sometimes people fight back. Sometimes people crumble. And sometimes people kind of soothe you. Those are not good responses. The right response is to listen in humble, repentant openness and seek to learn without crumbling. Now, where do people get the power to receive truth? Because I don't know if you can do it on your own. I think only one place, and that's at the cross of Jesus. What we're talking about now is way, goes way deeper It's a way deeper reality than just kind of psychological self-awareness. We're talking about sin, which is is dark beyond our capacity to even understand at times. Dallas Willard said, Our darkness is so dark, denial is actually a kind of a gift to the human race. Because if we were ever to see the truth about our spiritual condition before God, it would turn us to stone. See, the truth about me is that Sin is a much worse problem in me than I know. The only place where we can receive the power to see the truth and bear it is at the cross of Jesus. On the cross, why did Jesus die? First, because of the truth. The truth is we are sinners. We are lost. 
And unless someone pays for that sin, we are lost eternally. On the other hand, there's also love. Jesus went to the cross because he loved us. So that's the most amazing and the the strongest truth anybody could possibly give and the most amazing message of love anybody could give you at the same time. So this is the question for all of us. Are you willing to go to another human being and tell them, I want you to have an open door to tell me the truth about me? And if someone does give you that responsibility, are you willing to do that? with grace and love. Are you thrilled about this series, or what? Aren't you just loving it? It's tough. It's tough stuff. But we want to be that kind of place. Talk with God about this. It's, uh, it's learning, and we'll make mistakes, and it might get messy. right? The disciples were so messy. The early church was so messy. They didn't get it right. They're Raw humanity and pride and arrogance and entitlement bled all over the place. But they were real about it, so Jesus could get at it. And they were committed to each other. So when, we can, so when he can get at it, when we get real with him, man, oh my goodness, what can happen? And we want to be that kind of place. Not the kind of place where we, we all look like we have it together all the time. But where we're just honest about our blind spots. Could the, the ministry team come on forward? We're going we're gonna to pray here, and if you want, after we're, we're done praying, if you want ministry for any reason, if you want prayer, come on forward. Would you bow your head just for a second? Would you just take a moment right now as best you can to tell God, to, de- to declare, to decide, God, with your help, I want to be open to the truth about me as much as I can bear. The Bible is kind of full of these statements where people ask God for this. Search me, O God, know my heart, test me, know my thoughts, see if there's any offensive way in me. So, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would do that. We want to step into the light, Lord. God, we know that can hurt. But we know Jesus gave his life on the cross to redeem us from our sins so we can walk in the light. That's what we want to do. Would you help us to do that? God, this week, I pray right now that you would just help relationships, that you would help families and and marriages and parents and children, small groups and ministries and little communities become places where truth is spoken in love. And so we just ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.